out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of party day all the way from Barnsley, South Yorkshire. Because recently, I spoke to their guitarist, Greg to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Also, just to say, um, they've got a compilation that's come out on optic nerve recordings all the way from Preston. And this is a comprehensive collection of all their recordings plus demos. And as with everything that's come out on optic nerve recordings, it is a classic. And also the band, even though 40 years ago they were recording this material, are still sounding brilliant. So do check that out and uh, buy a copy. Anyway, look... This is my interview with Cole, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, classic style. Anyway, Cole, it's over to you. That is incredible that you mentioned that. My first single was David Bowie, Driving Saturday. Right. And I remember asking my mum when I was 10 for some red and white platform shoes, because I was into sweet. And uh, I remember headbanging to all kinds of sweet songs and Bohemian Rhapsody in the bedroom and stuff like that. Right. I was into the, the glam stuff. I mean, uh, the first record I remember getting was ABBA and then The Shadows. And there's a, a totally bizarre range of records that I've listened to as a kid. But I suppose the, the earliest influence I remember was uh, Bowie, mm-hmm. which faded away, I'll admit. But as a kid, it was Bowie, and then and also the the glam rock type stuff. But then by, I guess fourteen, the founder members of the band before Party Day, which we were, we were called Further Experiments in a Crowded Laboratory, they're splendidly named. <laughs> <laughs> we um, that was my brother and Martin who was the guitarist singer in Party Day. Uh, of course. They, they decided they wanted to form this band and they were listening to music like um, the, the Jam at the point, yeah. which moved on to bands like The Damned and then onto The Cure and The Skids. And so I got a whole mix of things and mixed into that, I suppose. Um, uh, the other album that I played completely to death was Kate Bush. What, the uh, so that, yeah, strange, strange mixture of things, but. If I if I think back to the main influences that I had as a kid, the records I played to death was the Skids, uh, Scared to Dance, uh, and the Jam All Mod Guns, oh, and then Stranglers, Rattlesnake, Vegicus, and Black and White. So those were my influences at sort of fourteen ish, fifteen ish, when I was first start playing in the band. Yeah, so that was a, so- that was a thing because I was about fourteen when we first joined the band. Yeah, so you had an older brother who had a bit of an influence on you then. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, Greg, Greg, Greg played in the band as the four piece originally. And he, um, he was working at a local uh, steelworks and then decided he was going to go to university when he was 20. So he left the band and that left us as a three piece. Uh, which was the core of Party Day in the in the first stages, which was Martin, Mick, and myself. Yes. Uh, so what, so we, I was going to say, were your parents at all of a musical? You know, did they have a music <laughs> passion? Well, 
My um, my parents weren't. My dad played violin extremely badly, but made violins. He was actually he used to make violins in his spare time. Oh. He was a woodworker for a local foundry, but his passion was woodwork, and so he made violins. So there's a bit of a musical influence there. My mum played piano, but we never heard it played because we didn't have a piano. <laughs> Both my granddads played piano really well, like for, for the, the silent movies in the cinema and classical pieces. Right. So that was where my, my musical grounding came from, my granddad. From age five to ten, I used to go and have to play the scales and Schubert and all kinds of musical, classical music, which I hated with a passion and gave it up as soon as my mum would let me. But that came back to help me at 14 when my dad came home one day from a sales meeting and said, lads, I've brought you something. And he brought us two high, uh, two, um, well, the high watt bass amps. Right. And a, a bass guitar, which was a, a, a Baldwin Baby Bison, which is a classic guitar, that someone had drilled two more machine heads into the top and turned it into a six string. So my dad, being the woodworking man that he was, thought, I can fix that. Brought it home, changed it back into a bass. That was my first bass. My brother, my brother was working, so he, he paid for it. But then he said, oh, I'll play guitar and you'll play bass. And that was really the, the formation of the core of the band originally. Yes. So my dad, I've, got, I've got my dad to blame for all this. <laughs> That's so impressive, actually. Cause, and so, because you were born, and this was near Barnsley in a place called Wombwell. Wombwell. Yeah, everybody calls it Wombwell. Yeah. When we live there, it's Wombwell. Yeah. Yeah, I was born in Wombwell, which is about four or five miles from the centre of the, from Barnsley town centre. So it's one of the outlying little towns around Barnsley. Yes, and what was it like culturally in, because in, I, I was brought up in the countryside in East Anglia, and it was not, you know, there wasn't a lot going on. It was very farming, rural. There wasn't a lot of culture, really. I mean, it was nice. Yeah, cult culturally. Well, um, around that time, I mean, the background, I suppose I remember most was, uh, well, it was Thatcher's years for a start, from 79 onwards, I think, so... Yeah. And I, and I say that because that played a big part in the in the uh, scene around Barnes, with it being a mining town. Um, so at the time, when I was just starting to wear my um, outlandish clothes and silly haircuts, I would get a lot of stick for it from the surrounding uh, area of, of you'd go into a town and have a drink, and you'd, you'd get comments from. We, we used to call them, oh, it's, it's the miners. The miners would give you some grief and beat you up on a Friday night and stuff like that, which is grossly unfair, but that's what it felt like at the time. And so at, in 84, I think it was, when the miners' strike started, there'd been a bit of a build-up to that. Yeah. So there was, a lot of, there was a lot of anger and a lot of, um, I suppose, tension around the town, particularly our, our town. Barnsley had at one point must have had 20, 30 pits uh, in the area. And it was, there's a massive background of mining history. So Thatcher built in with that, and my Barnsley was the headquarters for the mining area. The, you know, the union was in Barnsley. Um, it kind of led to this, this tension, I suppose. So when, when we would go out on a Friday, Saturday night, there'd be all a massive release of that tension. And, and, uh, and I think it, 
it added to a bit of creativity in the town because at one point there must have been 20, 30 bands all trying to get gigs and trying to do concerts. And, and I even knew miners that were into bands, you know. I mean, that's why it's unfair that uh, there was always this us and them kind of scenario. Yeah. It was to totally unfair, totally unreflective of what it was actually like. And, and um, but it, I think it led to, a, there was a lot of creativity at the point. Yes. Uh, well, it, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, you, you know, because I always look at that kind of period, there was the glam world and then there was prog rock and heavy metal and then, you know, the rise of punk. This is really simplified. <laughs> but then there's the yeah. post-punk period. And then, you know, Thatcher, like you said, she got in in 79 and then suddenly all that yeah. kind of... That the world that was kind of always kind of changing government during the 70s and the three-day week suddenly really changed. And we had the Falkland War, which yeah, kind of like yeah. had two years to yeah. that, which kind of suddenly kick-started this kind of government, really. And then the miners' strike, like you said. And then just before that, and this is what I kind of realised then, but also talking to all these bands, is that, you know, there was a huge amount of unemployment. So if you were slightly left of centre, yeah. it was very easy yeah. to feel like, well, society doesn't care about us, so we'll just sign on. And there was Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance Schemes. And obviously a lot of those indie bands that we loved from the 80s all went on those <laughs> kind of schemes. And you know, as, long as, had, <laughs> yeah. as long as you had a thousand pound in the bank account, which I always think is quite... Well, I, I, I went on the Enterprise Allowance myself. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was on there, so you know you're still... <laughs> um, my my enterprise allowance was to start a t-shirt printing right because yes i mean you could put yeah in we um we um wanted some t-shirts printed for the band so we went to a local community arts workshop God, where they they loved got a those, table. They? yeah they did i mean it was brilliant this place so they got a table with a few screens you could shoot your screens print your t-shirts and we used to dry them t-shirts for the band in front of a, a two-bar electric fire to, to actually dry the ink on them. We did loads of stuff like that. Even like the um, the cover for the first single is where that's where we printed that. The uh, cloth bag that we produced. We just screen printed all these bags ourselves and then got sewed them together ourselves. And that was all done at the community arts workshop. And then Steve, who works there, is still a good mate of mine, just one day said, oh, have you thought about doing this for a living? <laughs> so, the fool. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, 30 odd, 37 years later, still doing it, still got a business doing it. So fantastic. Oh, yeah. In a strange yeah. way. But yes, the thousand pounds in the bank account was always quite bizarre, wasn't it? Most bands say yeah. oh, we just had to pass it from one person to another. Yeah, then, just you know, pay it in, draw it out, pay it in, <laughs> And then just hope that everyone's trustworthy at that time. Because yeah, it was kind of it was kind of strange in that in that way that, you know, with a lot of the bands I've interviewed, there is this kind of straight five-year narrative. You know, you have that one year sort of being unemployed, sort of and obviously at that age, often sort of smoking and drinking and just being in a band and then just getting your, you know, the record played on John Peel and then suddenly you get the John Peel session. And and in those days, you know, and possibly now, I don't know, but every city and town had a alternative night, didn't they? And a, a venue, yeah, a place yeah. you could play. You know, like Norwich had one, Leicester, you know, I'm not going to go around the entire country, but every town had an yeah, alternative yeah. night, mostly on a Monday or Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, part of the week. And for £2 as a punter, you could go and see about three bands. So it kind of gave people yeah. a chance to to feel like at least you're playing and doing something rather than just stuck at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of places in Barnsley where, where you could play. And there's a lot that di didn't 
really getting interested in that kind of thing. But but yeah, that that narrative you describe about having the, the five year period, I think that's probably exactly what, what what it was like for me. But I was a little bit younger than the band mates, you know, the band mem the other band members. So I was always like the baby and I didn't really get involved in much of the discussion. It was kind of, you know, straight over my head. He's just, he just plays bass. <laughs> um, so, which I didn't mind, you know, I, I just thought, well, they know what they're doing, or at least I thought they did, but and it, we'd get the gigs. I'd turn up for a gig, I'd write the songs. And uh, I think that's how it progressed. So when Greg left, Martin uh, was doing all the singing. And then Martin suddenly decided that he was going to stop singing and said that, no, Carl, you're doing the singing now. <laughs> so, so it was a strange way how I got into being sort of like the singer and the bass player in the band. But yes. So it was all... did the bass come quite naturally and e easily to you? Because you did mention um, parents giving you some musical direction, which you hated, but probably thought, Thank God for that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it did. I mean, I, all I can remember from the piano playing days is the scales, like, every good boy deserves favour. That's the kind of thing that got drummed into me to learn the, the scales for the, from, the, from the piano. So I did recall that when I started playing bass, but I never played to music. I never looked at music. I never read music. It was just by ear. And I wanted to play, like, Bruce Foxton or... John Jacks Bunnell, you know. And, yes. Uh, so I just listened to bass playing and tried to play it as best as I could, really. And when this, when you can't imagine the joy when the lads, when Greg and Martin said, "Yeah, I think we'll let you play bass," because I played a couple of songs just jamming along. That was the other thing. My mum and dad let's play in their basement. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something they, they totally regret as we were doing it, you know, with massive four by 12 speakers and two by 18 bass bins. Uh, but you must have very nice neighbours. Um, oh, well, it, it, <laughs> the house was a bungalow which had been dug down to create a little basement. So, and we kind of put egg boxes around the walls and carpets and things like that. We kind of deadened the sound down as much as we could, but yeah, we must have had tolerant neighbours because we used to make a right racket. It was very loud. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we did we did that for about a year, year to 18 months. And I think eventually mum said, look, you know, enough's enough. So then we just start practicing local pubs and things like that. But yeah, it was, it was look, I was talking to my mum about it the other day and she said, oh, it was lovely, a lovely period. <laughs> <laughs> I know, 40 years ago, Jesus. Yeah, um, 40 years. <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? So your first single, which was um, Row the Boat Ashore. Yes. Where did, did you record that in uh, Castleford? Yeah, um, it was a studio called Woodlands. Um, I think this is where was... Chumbawamba ended up doing a lot of their stuff, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, could have been. Uh, the guy that ran it was called Neil... Um, I forgot the lad's second name. Neil Ferguson. Oh, yes. And he, he was in the a band called The Donkeys, I think, from years previous to that. Um, but, yeah, he, he'd set up his own studio and, he's, and he'd got the same arrangement with a cellar, a tiny cellar where he could just do the... he got all the microphones set up and then his front room was a massive mixing desk. And, so he must have had a, a, 
uh, a family that was quite his, his wife must have been quite thoughtful. Yes. But yeah, it was uh, it was um, amazing going to. The, but that that wasn't the first studio I went to. Another one in Barnsley, which was called Street Life, where we recorded some other stuff. But the the main stuff when we started recording was at uh, Woodlands. Went there a couple of times. Then he moved into a bigger bigger studio in. Normanton, I think it was, or Castleford. Not sure where the second one was. Yeah. But yeah, he got he, he started getting much bigger in a much better studio. But I, I look back on those recording days and think, how on earth did we do it? Because we didn't have much money, so we were doing like five songs in one session. Record the five songs in the morning and then mix them down in the afternoon and make sure it's good enough in the evening. Um, and you look back and you think, and who, was your, and who was your producer at the time? Because that's always quite <laughs> we critical. Didn't have, we didn't have a producer. <laughs> we were the producers. God, I much, much arguing amongst us at the store how it should sound. And no, no, that's not fair. We didn't really argue that much. We were just glad to be able to record yeah. and get something down. And it was so exciting getting, getting a record produced and traveling down to London to you know, for the cuttings and things like that. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, because it's quite interesting, because I've recently, I've done quite, I've interviewed quite a few producers, and one of them was John Porter, who had an amazing CV, <clears throat> and he was asked to step in to sort out the Smiths' first album, because they'd recorded it, and he's, and, you know, um, Tra uh, Travis, Jeff Chan, yeah. said, look, this is the recording, I don't think it's very good, but could you sort it out? And he listened and went, no, I can't sort this out. We're going to have to go back in the studio and do the whole thing again. And it was like, well, we've got no money. And it's like, well, how much have you got? And he's like, not much. And he said, okay, I'll just do it in a couple of days. So that first album had to be recorded, re-recorded. You know, he said, it just is not safe. You know, we can't say what you've recorded, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. But then you had to do it really quickly. So again, you know, I suppose in those days, people did sometimes just have to get on with it. I know Black Sabbath recorded their first album, I think, in an afternoon, because it's like, well, we'll be... Oh, playing. well, we're in good company then, <laughs> if Sabbath can do it. Yes, I think they said, well, look, we, we've been record playing this live, so we'll just come and do it, and there you go, take it away. That so sometimes I've, I've listened back to some of the songs, and I, I get those, I suppose, self-critical moments where you think, oh, God, I wish I'd had auto-tune, or, you know, I wish I'd had a chance to do that again, but what's up, it's just authentic, because that's how it was. You didn't have loads of money, you just had one shot at getting it done. And that was the best you could do. You had to do the best you could do on the day. No matter how many drinks you'd had the night before, you still had to get up and get to the studio and yes. <laughs> get the job yes. done. Um, so it was just it was just really a case of doing that. And then um, just with, with a manager called Steve, Steve Drury, to this day, he did far more than I ever thought he did at the time. Do you know what I mean? I was like oblivious to the behind the scenes work. I thought being in a band was just turning up, playing a song, turning up to a gig. Never really paid much thought to, well, who actually organized this and booked the van and arranged everything and got us home and that evening. And, you know, so Steve was brilliant amongst all that. I think Steve was instrumentally with Mick as well and getting, you know, getting this repressed together because he's kept a website going for us. Right. Which is partyday.co.uk, I, I believe. Um, 
and there's some amazing stuff on there. Just every every little piece of archive he finds, it, no matter how small it is, it goes on there. So I recently spent hours just like clicking through to things. I never knew one of our uh, record sleeves is in the Victorian Albert Museum in their uh, Prince archive. <laughs> so I thought, well, a great claim to fame, that is. <laughs> that is very good. That is, that is, yeah. that is actually I'm going to have to pay a visit to the v and I think, and have a look. Yeah, God, I've been to the, quite a few exhibitions there, including the David Bowie one a few years ago, David Bowie is, which was quite a yeah, special nice. moment. But then when you came to do your second single, The Spider, yeah, yes. this is the one that John Peel played, wasn't it? Well, he played both. He <clears> played, <throat> played a few tracks. He definitely played the Roll the Boat, and then he, he, he latched onto The Spider as well. That, at the time, John Peel was the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. If you if you played on John Peel, it was like oh, it was just an incredible feeling to listen. That John Peel, I remember I used to sit and listen to John Peel with my little ITT tape recorder and press the two buttons down when I wanted to record a song, and then just press it when it stops. And, you know, so that's, and John Peel never spoke over the intro of a song. No, because he must have known that people were at home with a little ITT recorder pressing those two buttons just at the start of the song. It's kind of intuitive. You knew when he was going to stop talking, bang, pressing two buttons. So I remember listening, because we'd, we'd got a, a notion that he might play the record. And I remember listening, and, and it just said a few words, and it's one from Barnsley, party day. Yeah, <laughs> click the two buttons, even though I got the song anyway. <laughs> yeah. I still had to record it, and we record it. But well, he used to often amazing. say fingers at the pause button, didn't he? It was one of his little catchphrases. Well, yeah, probably did, yeah. And also he hated, because daytime radio one in the 80s had all those kind of celebrity DJs and they just used to almost, playing the music was sort of second to their kind of yeah, yeah, anecdotes and um, banter. And so I think they used to sort of do all sorts over records. It was like, do I have to play another record? Can't you just hear? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was Travis. So he really, I think he kind of just thought, no, it's about the music, not about the celebrity status of being on the radio, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so with Peel, he played that. I know we'd got a few players from one or two others at the time, like uh, Kid Jensen and Annie Nightingale and people like that. And, and that was great because we'd joined the PRS and suddenly... We started getting a little bit of money, a few royalties. We were like, well, hey. Yes, absolutely. I know. This, is, this, must, this must have been very exciting. But you were still very on exciting. A, but you were still on your own label, weren't you, at this stage? Yes, we were, we were on his own label, which was Party Day Records. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, like I said, because at the time it was mainly Steve and Martin that were pushing the band in certain directions. And I just thought, well, that's how we're going to go party day records i didn't have enough weight or weight of opinion behind me really to to uh, look into any further so i just assumed that that's how we would progress as party day records it made sense to me so we joined the cartel which was the um red rhino cartel i think they were in based in york and they um they distributed all the records. They had an own distribution network to get it overseas and all around the country. And that's how we did the distribution, really. Just just gave all the records to Red Rhino and they uh, they did the rest of the work. But 
That was still the honeymoon. Sure. That was still the honeymoon phase, wasn't it? Before August, yes. Like later. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there's quite a few things we found out later, which made us think about exactly how many records we had sold, rather than how many we thought we'd sold. But we'll not get into that one. <laughs> yes, it's very interesting. But also at that point, because you know you mentioned about John Peel, but there was also there were the gatekeepers, John Peel and obviously Kid Jensen yeah. and, and Janice Todd. But there was also three weekly music papers like NME Sounds and Melody Maker, and also Record Mirror. But you know when I spoke to American bands, they went, "Yeah, but you had." you know, weekly papers. So they're going to fill it with anything, aren't they? Unlike a monthly, which is always a bit precious. So, you know, it was, it did help create this kind of ever increasing scene as well as all the venues around. The yeah, place where, you know, oh, absolutely. Which was amazing because there was that documentary last week about when Nirvana came to the UK and there's like, you know, all these people who were just like yeah. young kids, you know, booking, you know, the young kid who was booking bands from America and, and it's like, you know, we just got, got this kind of gig and it was like fair yeah well that's the guy that was i've not seen that documentary but i heard about it today and the guy anton who was apparently in that documentary quite a lot anton uh, brooks anton brooks was from barnsley oh and he was bad he was moon. in a band he, was he in did a bad, bad moon, moon publicity yeah that's right publicity yeah. yeah well he was in a band that we i, I was big mates with anton during my formative years of drinking in Barnsley Town Centre at the age of 16. <laughs> uh, sorry, 18. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and he was in, a, in, a, in another band that was on the scene at the time called Creatures of Habit. And they used to play the same gigs with us and we, you know, we'd sort of like trade members, trade band members at certain times. Um, I mean, that band, Liam, was also in that band as well. He's my co-director of the business that we still run to this day so there's quite a lot of crossovers from from that period but Anton left to to go to London because I think he must have had a, a yearning to be more successful in a bigger sphere and he yes. obviously yes. went on to do that he was quite successful with, with, with a lot of bands including you know Nirvana Yes, I know. And I think he did all the all, but he did a lot of those indie bands that came through in the late 80s and then early 90s. Yeah, he did. I think, he did. I think most people can have that zeitgeist moment where you're really on the scene. You just think, God, everything's yeah. going so well. And then the next generation comes along and you're probably not quite so into it or don't quite understand it. And then it's like, oh, well, I don't know with Anton, but I know with quite a few people, it's it's often eventually you start to feel a bit like an old man, don't you? At the, at the gig, <laughs> thinking Jesus. Well, you have that children, all that classic Glastonbury moment where you just think everyone's so much younger. And it's like, no, they're the same age. We're just much older. You know, exactly. the sixteen to eighteen-year-olds are still the same age. It's just that we're now gone yeah. to another twice day. that and, and a few yeah. more. Yeah. So it does. It does have that kind of. You know, you do feel a bit embarrassed when people keep saying that. It's like, no, we did look that young once and we were that pathetic. So let's let's not knock it. But then, anyway, look, then you get to the mid 80s. So, yes, the miners' strike. So it was all very red wedge, wasn't it? And Socialist Workers' Party. Did that mm. have a big effect on you? Because obviously we had the Redskins we loved. Billy Bragg we also kind of loved. And, um, yes, and there was all those other bands like the Bonsky Beat and people like that. When, yeah, did did yeah. that kind of affect, did, did any of that sort of slip into your own musical consciousness? Um, I think 
I think the tensions and the the the, the anger at the time. I, I suppose that slipped into my songwriting and lyrics, and as a as an impressionable sixteen and seventeen year old. Um, so a lot of that might have come into it. It was a lot of stuff like you know, like the Green and Common Women and the. Uh, the, the anti-nuclear stuff and yeah, all kinds of things, CND stuff, yeah. yeah, which probably came into the, I suppose, the lyrics. Half of the time, I, I look back now, I think, what the hell were you talking about then? And this, <laughs> <laughs> but um, musically, I don't think it did. And musically, I was, I was just trying to create a tune. So was Martin. And between us, if we could create a tune or a nice couple of chords that fit together nicely, then that was good enough for us, really. We were always trying to create some kind of tune or something that you could remember in a song. Yes. Um, and Cause actually, suppose, yeah, because listening to the record, it is is incredibly instantly accessible, isn't it? it you know, there is they're very well crafted songs which are very you know, like, oh yes, this has been this isn't like Bog Shed or Stump or Big Flame, which is a bit like hmm, interesting. Yeah. It was um, yeah, we, we, we did it's like, made to be danced, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean Mick Mick was an incredible drummer and, and still is. Uh he's he's been in a few bands of late, but I don't think he's actually doing anything at the moment. But it was I was these guys were my heroes, Martin and Mick, because Mick was an incredible drummer. Martin, I thought, was an incredible guy who played guitar. It wasn't the best guitar player, but he could throw a tune or a chord sequence together that would fit with my bass playing perfectly, or I thought. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just, I was just so happy being in the band, to the point where I gave up on A-levels and, you know, things like that. It was, I thought, well... This is the direction for me being in a band. <laughs> a good idea so, at the time. Good idea at the time, exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't suppose the 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 actual uh, surrounding stuff that was going off at the time influenced anything musically. Uh, there, was a, there was a lot of well, I used to listen to Joy Division and think that they're incredibly. Um, downbeat songs but yet when you can listen to the songs i'd feel uplifted by that kind of song like atmosphere or something like that you know one of those songs well transmission was always a great one wasn't it Don't yeah transmission i mean i remember seeing that on what was it um the tube or something i, don't I think know, it was that anthony wilson tony wilson program wasn't it where he was um he presented them I'm not quite sure. I think the tube had started when he probably... Yeah, yeah, it was before the tube. It was before the tube, you're right. Was it the Grey Whistle testing we performed on? Uh, Yeah, there was that other programme that Tony Wilson used to present from Manchester, wasn't there? Which I can't remember, but that was kind of one of their... Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, anyway, that's... I suppose that's what I... Maybe I took that musically, I'm not sure. The other band I loved to watch was the Chameleons. Oh, my God, but I love the Chameleons. Their sound is so expansive. Oh, just the, 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 my favourite band to this day, and if Mark Burgess is listening, he's a, he's a god to me, that, that guy. I went to see him recently at um, Home Firth. They've got a brilliant venue at Home Firth. 
And I went to see them there and they were just stunningly good. Still to this day, absolutely brilliant. I loved every single. We supported the Chameleons at Leeds Polytechnic because it was right. still then. And it's one of my favourite moments in the band is just thinking, bloody hell, we're supporting the Chameleons. It's like, I, didn't, I can't remember anything about our gig. Yes. <laughs> All I can remember is finishing the gig, coming back out to the front of the stage and just joining in at the front there with all the other guys in the crowd. It was just immense. Yes, they yeah. have such a big sound. I just, um, yeah. to this day, I can't understand how they didn't sort of get to the next level no. to your simple minds. Exactly. They, they deserve to. And I don't understand that either. Some of their songs are just so good. Yeah, um, but their album covers were pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could say that, yeah. <laughs> so they're like Marillion kind of prog rock. Yeah. They didn't go with the music at all. I hope he's not listening. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but they were just, yeah, didn't sort of fit at all, did they? Like the Smiths had this great kind of image and I just thought, yeah, that's good. You know, they kind of still look all right today, but yeah, anyway. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, our image, I don't know what, we, we've, we've since been classed in the post-punk gothic uh, scenario you know with, with, with goth band and stuff like that i think it's not quite i think it's your mick mercer connection isn't it could be could be that we used to wear baggy jumpers and jeans and i don't know it was a uh, yeah there so there was a little touch where we kind of went into the you know, i suppose a bit more kiwi like you know a bit more robert smith but um, well, there was a, there was bands like the I don't know, was the mission. There was Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus, Sisters of Mercy, yeah. And there was yeah. definitely a kind of uh, that. Another one was the a bit of a gossip the Southern Death Cult. The Southern Death Cult, who became Death Cult, who became the Cult. <laughs> yeah, that was another one. In fact, we supported Southern Death Cult as well. Well, no, they were called Death Cult at the time. Amazing. That, that was a, that was another that was another favourite moment in my party day history. At that gig, we were supporting Death Cult, and I broke a string on my bass on the first song. And being a well-prepared chap that I was, I'd forgotten to bring me extra set of bass strings. So <laughs> halfway through the song, I'm kind of like gesturing towards their bass player, because he was stood at the side, as if to say, can I borrow your bass? And I just got this blank face, this blank stare, just stared straight through me. But he's not going to lend me his bass. So I had to play an entire set with three bass strings. And I'm so proud of myself that I managed to get through without anybody really noticing. So that's very impressive. So, how did you deal? Because I know from various bass players that singing and playing the bass is quite a tricky little number. Though Lemmy from Motorhead did it quite well, and so did Sting. And I suppose Carl Palmer from Emerson Lake and Palmer. But yeah. it's still. Some, you know, various people have said it's actually quite a tricky thing to do. Did you manage to sort of navigate the, the dual role quite comfortably? Um, I suppose, yeah, look, looking back, I didn't really see it as difficult. It was just, it was just, it needed to be done, I suppose. Because um, I, I, I just started off by singing little backing vocals. And then as Martin kind of rescinded the, responsibility for it he, uh, he just through practices it just became well I'll, okay I'll sing this one I'll, I'll sing your song Martin yeah and it, I, I never really thought about it it just happened naturally um, yes. I'd, I'd always be trying to be quite technical with the bass 
But then I suppose when I was singing and playing at the same time, the technicality would suffer a little bit on the bass. It would tend to be more of a, a strum or a, a thud, you know, that kind of bass playing. But I'd still try and mix mix other stuff in. I mean, I mentioned Bruce Foxton as a bass player. I used to think he was a, a genius, some of the unrecognised. I mean, so people just think of Paul Weller with the jam, but Bruce Foxton, I thought, was absolutely brilliant at driving that band in the background. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what what I always wanted to do is with Mick, is create like a solid platform for Martin then just to do what he wanted over the top of it. Um, but yeah, and then, but as you probably know, Martin left the band uh, in 85, 84, 85. So had the album, the album Glass House, had that been Yeah, we'd read it. Yes, we'd recorded, apart from two or three, because he'd left the band. He left through ill health, uh, which to, the, to this day is still suffering from that ill health. Mm. Uh, and he, um, so we, we finished recording two or three of the, the, the final songs. We had to, you know, fill in for him to do that. So, but that, by that, when we, when we released it, he'd left the band. So did it, it, did, it quite, what, did it feel quite difficult at that stage if, if such a key member won the yeah. band? I mean, that must have felt really difficult to see somebody struggling like that. Oh, absolutely. I was absolutely gutted. Like I said, I, I thought everything about Martin. I kind of like, you know, it was a bit of a hero of mine. Um, and to see that happen, it was a, it was a mental health problem, mm-hmm. uh, was just... Well, it, yeah, it really knocked me in particular. I remember feeling, I just couldn't believe it was happening. I'd, I'd never witnessed anything like that, I'd never come across anything like that. And, you know, I ended up in hospital for three months. Uh, visiting became, was just horrible, visiting. It was, it was like everything you'd think about a mental health institution at the time. It, well, it felt like that. It felt very austere and... Uh, not not a nice environment which obviously it was required yes but it was it was a horrible environment for for martin to be in it was just uh, just gutting for me yeah uh, but he, i mean he came out and um, tried to come back into the band but it's obviously it's not going to work um so we carried on and then we just got dean who was in another band in barnsley at the time and he was also working with me at the you know the t-shirt business and he he joined straight away and so the second album was dean playing the guitar so we've had one album with martin and then the second album with dean and it kind of shifted emphasis a little bit on the second album it was a bit more um a bit more rocky i suppose i'm not sure of the word i'm not sure how anybody else would describe it but yeah and, and it it was um, a period of change, which I don't think I ever really got over it. You know, the fact that Martin wasn't in the band anymore. Not so, not so anything bad against Dean, because no. he was a fantastic bloke. He was a really good mate of mine. And uh, he was a brilliant guitarist. And, you know, I loved being in the band with Dean, but it, something had gone a little bit, I suppose. I saw Martin recently. Um, I went to see him a few weeks back, and he's he's come out just come out of hospital again. So you know, forty years on, he's still 
still struggling with it. And uh, it was just the his same old self. And he, he was just such a, a nice guy, a really happy, jokey, sort of nice sort of guy. And, uh, and he just sang one of our songs, one of the first songs we've not got recorded, apart from on a cassette. A bit like your C86. Yes. <laughs> It's recorded on a cassette, and he sang the whole song for me all the way through, every lyric, right to the end. And then I found the cassette. Actually, in fact, actually, I found this cassette the other day and played it, and it just brought back so many memories. And he just sang the whole song all the way through. Thought so it was an incredible, incredible guy, and such a shame that that happened to him and kind of knocked us off. Yeah, off balance really because it was all going at that point. We were just about to, you know, field sessions were in the mix and uh, bigger gigs and tours and tours abroad and things like that. And it uh, it just scuppered everything really at the time. God, that's and also you probably weren't even twenty then, were you? So it must have been quite no um, about eighteen, I think, when when that happened. Because um, things like that normally. <laughs> We've experienced lots of exciting things in our 50s, but when you're in that age, normally it's a bit carefree and a bit sort of naive, really, isn't it? So, yeah, um, it, it is. And I don't think I've really appreciated how that must have been for Martin until I've experienced it myself recently with the Parkinson's, that um, that black cloud that sits on your shoulder every day and you don't know why it's there and it just drains you. It just... It, you know, it's so difficult to get through each day. And he's been suffering like that for 40 years. And it's just such a shame that, you know, but we're getting a bit morose here, we're getting a bit morose. But it's it's an interesting backdrop to to what actually happened to the band. And yes, how well, it from that point on. Yeah, well, it's kind of a hard... I mean, most bands have that honeymoon period, don't they? I sort of talked about the five-year narrative, and there's a sort of... The first <laughs> yeah. few years are kind of quite nice and naive, and everybody's happy, and then there's a few moments, aren't there, kind of reality checks, you know, on the... Probably the second or third albums, and lots of touring, and people start getting a little bit sort yeah. of tetchy, and conversations that you should have at the beginning, like, you know, to do with who owns what, and whose <laughs> who's kind of name goes on the songwriting, and you know, what are we going to do with this and that side? We just go, oh, just park it. A bit like Spandau Ballet, and then it all goes terribly wrong when it's, when they yeah. go to court and get sued, which obviously didn't quite happen with your part, your band. But, you know, there you go. It, it's, it, it's kind of tricky because it is those moments where I remember there was a documentary, I think, on about the police. I think when they reformed, there was three members and still were. And um, yes, two of the members, Sting and uh, Stuart Copeland, really didn't get on. So they had they had to have yeah, band yeah. therapy, and um, <laughs> yes, I think, I think you know to try and cope with the rest of the tour because actually there was millions of pounds worth of resting on yeah. those two getting on. And I think they eventually managed to sort of cope and finish the tour. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting one trying to keep it together. You don't really appreciate it as a fan. You think it must just be the best thing, and everyone's just so happy, and everyone's making loads of money it's so nice well it, it, for a few years yeah it was the best thing it was just uh, we didn't make it i didn't make any money at all apart from the money made from um, the uh, royal royalties from radio plays that's the only thing i ever saw um i'm sure steve steve drury the manager will say yeah he lost a lot of money which <laughs> 
which yeah. I didn't, but anyway, that's another story. Uh, God bless you, Steve. God bless you. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, that's what it was all about. It's just about having fun and having enjoyment and being creative uh, and just being part of the scene, I suppose. There's a big scene in Barnsley and Sheffield. I mean, think of the bands that are around in Dance Society, for instance. They were like kind of the forging ahead at the time. Yes. And I know Cherry Red Records just brought out a compilation of Sheffield bands, didn't they, as well, which was... I, I don't know. I don't know. So that, yes. that was quite something. So did when you did the second album, did you... Were you touring or did you tour much of that or was that almost the end of the band at that stage? It was almost the end of it for me. Um, we did quite a few gigs. We didn't do a tour as such because we were mainly local, local uh, gigs that we did. Uh, we'll say local, I mean Yorkshire, Lancashire, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no impetus from me and there's no driving force. And Steve had uh, left as well at that point. So he's really down to us as a three piece to pick up the pieces. And to be honest, I, I didn't really want to pick up the pieces at that point. I think looking back, I think that's what it was. Um, and so I left the band then, which left uh, Dean and make and then Paul Nash from Dance Society joined and uh, I think they got uh, well they got another bass player in Sean they kept going and did some recordings but never actually released the recordings and there's one song on this um, compilation that's come out called Surge and that's the one with Dean singing which I'm really pleased that that's on there excellent because uh, um, I think they've done a full album's worth but because they'd not released it, I think when, when Mick and Steve were planning this, they decided that it wasn't really party day that many people would know. So they didn't include it in the mix. Um, but yeah, so and, and after that, I think the band kept going for another year, 18 months, something like that. And then it just folded completely. Yeah. So, and, why do, and why did you walk away in, well, not walk away, well, possibly walk away, um, in 1986? What was the, the moment for you? Um, well, looking back, I think it's, I, I don't think I was enjoying it. I was just wasn't enjoying possibly, possibly the direction, even though it's me that was writing the bloody songs. <laughs> um, because I did join another band after that called Biff. And we recorded five songs, and those five songs are still probably, no, not probably, possibly the five most liked songs that, that I personally like, and no one's ever heard them. <laughs> so it was a, it was a new direction that we that we'd taken. It was still still quite indie, but it was a new direction that we'd taken. But we, again, we were doing it not to become famous or sell millions of records. We're just doing it because we enjoyed enjoyed doing it. Uh, I, I think after, after Martin had left, that's when my realistic view that we could do something together as a band, that's when it all faltered, I suppose. Um, and it became more of a, a chore practicing twice, three times a week rather than actually enjoying it. Yeah. Um, so, so I'd rather went into something that I did enjoy, uh, albeit just local and not really of any any consequence. You know, it was less less pressure, I suppose, to uh, 
to succeed. But did it feel uh, quite difficult to leave the band <clears throat> or were you quite... Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, because, you know, I've got a good relationship with Mick and still have a um, good relationship with Dean. Um, and, yeah, it was very difficult to leave. Uh, but I don't know. It was just a decision to make, really. It, it, when I'd left, I felt a little bit relieved that I'd no longer got that responsibility. <laughs> So then, so then I started another band, you know, it was just crazy, but that's how it goes. So was Biff so your... Was Biff your hmm, there's an echo there. Was Biff your last kind of musical moment? <clears throat> yeah, well, I rejoined up with my brother, who was originally with the band before he went to uni. Yeah, great. And we, we uh, yeah, we formed a band, the splendidly named Pastry Dave and the Obvious Wigs. We had a little Dr. Rhythm drum machine. You know, the early days of drum machines, well, I had a Dr. Rhythm that I used to control with my bare feet on stage, <laughs> <laughs> pressing the buttons with my toes. Uh, and then Liam, who was in Creatures of Habit, and Dean, who was in Creatures of Habit, we all did, got together and decided to form Biff, which I wish we'd probably have pushed that a little bit more. And Dean, to this day, Dean Ormston, Ask me every time I see him. We're getting back together. <laughs> so you never know. At some point, we might get, get back together. We're asking that about party day. You know, is there a possibility we could do something again, me and Mick? Well, obviously, it's difficult with Martin. Unfortunately, very sadly, Dean, Dean Beckett passed away about five years ago with after suffering from cancer. So oh. it's... Yeah, it's the, the re-release of this stuff is um, it, it's kind of bittersweet because it's it, I've really enjoyed list, re-listening to the records, but it bring, brings back a few memories as well, you know. So I'm getting a bit bit dour here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but, uh, I don't it's know just the reality of it. It's just the reality of you know what's happened and uh, how things just come back later on in life and I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm really proud of the stuff that it is coming back out and I really wish we could do some gigs you know it's uh, circumstances probably against us on that one I think yeah I know it's always tricky because because the great thing with optic nerve they they've had you know I did one an interview with the guy from the Nivens from North and Northumberland and yeah. um, you know it's like well as he said you know we, we wouldn't have a clue you know there's no way that they would be able to play. They wouldn't know what chords or even what the lyrics are anymore to some of their songs, which is yeah. which is fair enough because you know it's it's only thirty years ago. <laughs> well, I, I have I have actually got my bass guitar out. It rarely comes out these days, but I got it out when I got the CD and tried strumming along to a few of them. And I think, Christ, how the hell did I manage to play that? It's uh, far too complicated for me these days. <laughs> <laughs> so when you listen, when you heard all the, the collection that has been put together, which is, I have to say, really comprehensive, which was the, the ones that you were particularly impressed and amazed by? Um, well, if I'm honest, it, I love the earlier stuff. I mean, there's one... There's, one, there's Carousel. There, which, yeah, Carousel's on the, on the first album. I mean, the, the first album that... Yeah, I love the stuff on there. I love Rabbit Pie because I love Martin singing. Uh, Martin sings on that one, and I, I, I've always I always loved his voice. So I was 
I could never understand why I didn't want to sing. Uh, I think obviously it may have been uh, an anxiety thing, possibly, or I don't know. I'll, I'll have to ask him on that. Yeah. Uh, but on a lot of the songs that Martin sings, I, I, I love, I, I kind of gravitate towards those songs more than the others. But Glass House, the original Glass House 1982, is one of my favourites. And uh, Strangely, there's a song that we never put out on a single called Tin Sky, which is a, a, it's just a baseline gone mad. I must have had a full bag of midget gems that day when I, when I came up with that baseline. <laughs> <laughs> but then, I, I, you know, I listen to it all and sometimes I think, oh, I'm not so keen on that one. And then, and then I change my mind and I think, no, no, it's quite good, that one. So uh, there's merit in them all for me. I like them all. And, uh, We've got some really good, fond memories of the recordings and going to the studios and doing the gigs. and It's just great memories to a point, and then, but there's always tinged with that little bit of uh, sadness about, you know, how, how it turned out, you know. Yes, I know. That's um, that a particularly... Yes, out of all the stories, that's yours is has a bit of a different narrative, really, doesn't it? You know, I know it's strange. You just think, God, I've heard most of these, you know, the story of the band um, now. But you no, know, yours is a little bit like, God, that is a bit. Even I'm feeling depressed. No, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. no, let's not get depressed. No, we're not going to get depressed. <laughs> it's, look, it's, it's a great compilation, and I have to say, if anybody, I'm not just saying it, but I have been playing the record quite a bit in the last few days and it's absolutely amazing so i think you must feel oh, pleased to hear that thank you, you know, <laughs> it's you know it yeah it's you know, even though it is a bit bonkers when you think does this really sound dated now because it is nearly 40 years ago and um but it, yeah. you know it, it probably does but at the same time it still actually sounds fantastic and it's like yeah this is really well done you know these aren't just kind of i mean some stuff that i listened to from the 80s you don't want to listen to the whole three-minute song, but, you know, because you get the gist, but you just think, yeah, that was of its moment. You know, I'm thinking of some of those bands like Bob's Head or Stump. I mean, there are some brilliant songs, but they are a bit like, well, yes, I loved John Peel playing them back then, but I don't know if I'd yeah. sit in my room listening to them <laughs> all day, whereas actually I've had had your record on quite a bit, and it's like, oh, actually, this is really good. I'm, you know, this has been a, a fun thing. Well, so, please, um, please do hear it. There's one, just one song called um, called Atoms that uh, I think has kind of uh, had more of more of an airing than lots of the other songs because it, it it got latched onto in club scene in Europe and sort of uh, German clubs. I don't know if they were like gothic music clubs or eighties nineties music clubs, uh, but it, it it got picked up and put on a CD and it's on. YouTube, I discovered we've got quite a lot of stuff on YouTube, unbeknownst to me. Yes. <laughs> we'll put other stuff on, but it's all there. Yeah. Well, actually, part of, that was where I was listening to your album Glass House on YouTube. And that yeah. was, yeah. it had, you know, like 55, just under 55,000 views and listeners, yeah. I suppose. I thought, wow, that's, that's <laughs> amazing. So, and all the, all the, you know, the comments underneath again was like, oh, this is a classic. This is a yeah. effing masterpiece. Um, <laughs> this is a really top album. Um, so, I mean, it's like, this is fantastic. I mean, you know, it is, I think people, I think Optic Nerve will do really well with this one, won't they? Well, I hope so. I hope so. It's, um, I, I feel privileged, to be honest, that someone has actually approached us to do all this. It's not, it didn't come from us originally. It came from them. And it's, uh, 
it, it feels quite an honour to you know to be asked because yeah. it had all been sort of consigned to the history books for me. Um, so, I mean, even this even spurred me to go and see Martin. So, for any one single reason that this is a good thing, it's because I went and spent some time with Martin three weeks ago, and I'll continue to do that from this day. Yeah. So it's uh, it's brought back some some interesting stuff. And did um, and has he enjoyed seeing the, seeing the album and the um, in the band? No, not really. He. Uh, because I, I took him the CD. Like I said, we all got the uh, the one CD each as a, as a payment for this. But I took him the CD and he, he just kind of looked at it and just put it on, a, on the, the side. He's got no internet. You know, he's not got a computer. lives in a tiny, tiny flat on his own. Um, but he seemed quite happy. So that if he's happy, then that's fair enough. He goes fishing. Played in a few bands with some mates, and it was it was so good to see him. You know, I was really chuffed, and when I when I came away from there, I was I was terrified when, when I went because I didn't know what I was going to find or who I was going to meet, and what it was going to be like. But it was like it was I was meeting up with him forty years ago in the local pub. Put his arms around me, and I put my arms around him. We had a big hug, talked rubbish for two hours, and then. And then I left, and that was it. Didn't really discuss party day that much. Just he's he's taking up painting. He gave me a painting, <laughs> so it was a really really nice two hours. God, that is nice. I mean, it's not yeah. completion, but it sort of feels like no, no. It's, it's a nice it's a nice part of the story because otherwise, I think you know your life would um, <laughs> somehow have that missing something, wouldn't it? You know, these connections can mean so much, which is kind of you, ne- you never know. If I go and see him again, he might get his guitar out. I might take the bass, and who knows? That'd be that would be <laughs> we'll special. Give Mick, we'll give Mick a ring. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He'd be love that. But um, look, if you could have said something to your sixteen or eighteen-year-old self starting out in this interesting world that is music and creativity. Is there anything that you would have thought, God, I would have just whispered that in their ear, even if they ignored it? Uh, I think creativity for me is to try and stay creative and not get bogged down with day-to-day trivial nonsense. so that that was, I suppose that when when you when you're happy and you've got the, the least responsibility, I think that's probably when you're most creative. And I think maybe when I'd got extra responsibility, when Martin left and Steve left, it became less happy. Therefore, I got less creative. Um, but also, just uh, I don't know really. It's it's a difficult difficult question. What would I say to a sixteen year old? <laughs> <laughs> just have fun. Just enjoy yourself. Just have a good time. Enjoy yourself. And if you're being creative and you're in a band, just go for it. And just well, there's a we employ a guy at work, James, and he's a drummer. They're in a band that are getting a lot of popular votes, and they've got even like up to a million views on on a million plays on Spotify. He's in a band called Caskets, and. He doesn't know this, but I'm so excited for him because he comes to work and he does his screen printing. He prints T-shirts and hoodies and polo shirts. 
And then it goes off into this band arena, which is completely different to an hour in a band. They've done all the marketing beforehand, before they've even done a gig. You know, they've done all the recordings. I think this is crazy. It's back to front. They've got a massive audience before they've done gigs, you know. But the gigging now, and the tour in America next year and things like that. And I'm just so excited for him. And it's, it's like, because he's young, do it now. Because we've discussed it. You get older in life. Things happen, shit happens, and it becomes more and more difficult to get that done. Yes, absolutely. So, yes. You've got to grasp it while it's there, really, haven't you? And get, get, get the chance when you get the chance to do it. Yes, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. You always say, Yes, I'm going to do a bit of traveling next year. And then suddenly, <laughs> oh, something happens. And then perhaps next year, and then there's that point where you think, I'm never going to go traveling. I'll just go away for two weeks. And, you know, yeah. the long break to de- go and discover yourself never really happens, does it? So. Well, I've been converting my cellar into a recording studio f- or thinking about it for the last four to five years. So <laughs> at some point, <laughs> I will do it. Yes, get the egg boxes out and you'll be fine. That's it, egg boxes and blankets. Blankets, absolutely. Well, look, this has been amazing. So when I do the, when I put this up together and put it out, I can always send you a link and then you can put it, or I can send it to your chap who does the website, actually. Steve yeah. Drury. And then Steve Drury, yeah. There you go. He'll love that. I, I did notice, and I have to say, whoever, is he the person who does your uh, Wikipedia page? Because he's, um, someone's, someone's put that really up to date with their... Uh, yeah yeah i think he is yeah yeah I, i'll be honest with you i've not spoke to steve in years but i do i do know he's been keeping that up to date he's an amazing job really keeping that up to date because uh, well i look at it sometimes and i think bloody hell i've forgotten all about that or i, did, I, I didn't uh, there's some things i didn't even know myself yeah <laughs> that he puts on there i think really yeah <laughs> uh, i mean a lot of the john peel stuff was with steve was doing you know, kind of negotiations with getting that stuff done. Um, so I'm not I'm not fully up to speed on the full story with the John Peel. So, but that's how it goes. That's what managers are for. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I mean, he's keeping the flame anyway. So that's oh, absolutely, absolutely, he's doing a good job. Well, look, that. thank you ever so much for your time for this, and um, yeah, really appreciate it. And again, yeah, no I really love listening to the album actually. So. Um, It'll be it'll be great, and I really hope Optic Nerve do do well as well because Ian is such yeah. a nice guy, and let's face it, it's a labour of love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pleased to have speak to you. It's been a, been a privilege for me. Yeah. Well, look, take care, and all the best for the future. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I'll I'll say goodbye now. But anyway, good night. All right. See you Thanks, later. Yeah. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end the conversation. <laughs> or not anyway i love leaving that last bit in just just always amazes me and makes me cringe anyway look a massive thank you to carl first forgive me the time for that interview that was uh, from party day and as i mentioned probably at the beginning and during the interview uh, optic nerve recordings have released a compilation of their recordings do check it out it's absolutely beautiful he says confidently. Anyway, um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Um, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>